Welcome back, listeners. I'm your host, Brad Christensen, bringing you another exciting episode of Lost in Hyperspace, brought to you by Surrealist Pictures. Character building in Baby Driver, Dunkirk, and Doctor Who series finale. First of all, I would like to thank all of our listeners for hanging in there during our short summer hiatus. This podcast is very important to me, but we are still primarily a full-time production company, and it has been a fairly busy summer in terms of work. A couple other changes to the podcast as well. We are going to be moving from a bi-monthly to a monthly schedule to accommodate the extra work coming into the company and to give some of our guests more time to arrange their schedules before they are asked to come on the podcast. All right, with those announcements out there, let's get to the real reason why everyone is here. So this summer has been great for movies, in my opinion, and a lot of them have excellent character development and story. I think this is important because I and many other writers place tremendous value in these areas, even in the face of the action over dialogue and character development that seems to be gripping so many of the writing in Hollywood movies these days. So, speaking of action movies, I actually saw Baby Driver before I went in to see Dunkirk, and the whole movie, to me, is just a work of art in terms of its ability to match character emotion with music and editing pace. Like a finely tuned engine of a car, Baby Driver has moments of intense speed, followed by some coasting to catch up and give the characters room to breathe and develop into their own. The speed comes from the fantastic chase scenes, coupled with the music that Baby plays to keep him on his game when driving. I think that this is an example of a really well done action movie. You know, I was just kind of talking about the ones where you have Transformers, where it's all about the visual effects. And I think Baby Driver is a perfect example of a movie that balances character development without throwing you too hard into the action. I mean, you get invested into these characters. You like these characters. And yes, Baby is the name of the character, or at least the one he prefers to go by. And he is played with tremendous expression by Ansel Ansort. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Ansel Ansort. Baby is a getaway driver who suffers from tinnitus or a constant buzzing in the ear that causes him major discomfort. His escape is music and he is seen throughout the film wearing headphones and sunglasses to hide his eyes most of the time. However, couple this with his extreme sharpness and an ability to lip read and most of the time he doesn't need to hear what people are saying to interpret them. He's definitely an introverted character, and he prefers to listen rather than speak, leaving his personification to his reaction and expression. I think this is important because most of the leading roles these days go to more extroverted characters, and this break from that makes the movie ultimately more unique and exciting in terms of character development. However, this introversion is misinterpreted as self-absorption and irritates some of his fellow criminals who latch on to his habits and the look of constant indifference he seems to always carry. However, they and his boss, Doc, played by Kevin Spacey, tolerate it as he is truly invaluable because of his tremendous skills behind the wheel. By the way, as an introvert, I can deal with a lot of what he's saying. I mean, as an introvert, you are sometimes people misinterpret that as self-absorption so from 
right off the bat, you have a character that I can relate to. And that was that was another reason that I was really drawn into this film and, and these characters, because you're not taking the stereotypical extrovert who's going out there giving these gung-ho quotes. In fact, for most of the movie, the main character is quiet. And I think that that's a, that's a, that's a nice change in terms of character development from other movies that I've seen. And the other thing is right off the bat with this story, you have here the perfect setup for a unique style that Baby Driver makes full use of. Because he's an introvert, because he has this tinnitus, you have a backdrop for a unique style to give this film. And Baby Driver makes full use of that. The car chases are played against the music, and the paranoia other characters feel around the mostly silent baby's character particularly his careless driving in the face of life and death, fits well with the style and pace of editing and cinematography. Some choice moments in the film seem almost like a music video itself. I would have to say, given just the uniqueness of this film and the fact that I have not found another experience, I mean, there really is nothing, there there really is not an experience like it. It is just very uniquely done, and I would give it an enthusiastic recommendation It is hard to find parts of this film not to like. Just from the beautiful cinematography to the editing and excellently chosen actors in each role, you would be crazy not to see this movie while it is in theaters. So my favorite scene in the film has got to be the scene where he is blasting his music during the briefing about the gang's getaway plan and nobody thinks he's paying attention or even hearing what is being said and Baby is able to rehash the briefing word for word. Which again makes the character unique and relatable. There are plenty of times where I, as an introvert and somebody who kind of has a a learning disability that makes listening a little harder, there are times where I actually am listening, but I'm doing other things at the same time, and people misinterpret that as me not listening, when in reality I've heard every word that has been said. And so, you know, that to me, makes his character just so relatable. I mean, the fact that I I see so many parts of myself in this character, and I think that that is what makes good character writing. When you when you look at a character and you and you say this person could be me or it could be somebody else that I know, that is what makes good character writing. And when you have all these elements that come together, it just makes a very complete film. You have all this emphasis on character. You have all this emphasis on scenery and editing. It's just all around a well-rounded film. I could go into spoiler territory here, but I'm not going to do that because the point of this review here is not to break down the film scene to scene as I did in the Oscar episode, but to give an honest recommendation of what I thought of the film. All right, so that's Baby Driver. The second film that I'm going to talk about here is Dunkirk. So I related to Baby Driver because I think the main character was very relatable to me. With Dunkirk as a filmmaker, I would say I related to that one a little bit more because it was closer to what I would do on a writing and stylistic level. With Baby Driver, I love it because I knew it probably wasn't a style of film I would make. And that was the other pull to it was the fact that it was it was done where it's like you look at it and and you say I could never do this this is just a a work of art that is done by somebody who has a different vision than I do and I really respect those kinds of movies the opposite could be said of Dunkirk which I really felt a close connection to in terms of writing and character portrayals in terms of common themes both Dunkirk and Baby Driver used music and silent moments in the film very effectively to portray emotion but in different ways. 
Dunkirk silences were moments of contemplation about morality, duty, and uncertainty of survival. Baby Driver's silent moments were often about getting caught up in the madness and the chase, and nowhere is this more apparent than at the end of that film when all the stops are pulled and it goes into a full action film. With Dunkirk, the action is gradually dispersed throughout and is used effectively to shock the audience and bring them into the fray of battle to show them the true horror facing the soldiers at the Battle of Dunkirk. The film starts by establishing through introductory text its place in history. During the invasion of France by Nazi Germany, thousands of Allied soldiers retreated to the seaside city of Dunkirk where they awaited evacuation from the war front which was quickly closing in on them. The story takes place by connecting three separate plots, which are titled at the beginning of the film. The Mole, which follows a group of soldiers as they try desperately to survive and escape the onslaught of battle. They end up managing to sneak aboard a vessel by hiding on the Mole, but these plans of escape are thrown into chaos as the airstrikes and torpedoes from U-boats are sinking all the military vessels. Everybody who's trying to get off this beach is being picked off and destroyed overhead by planes. And that is where all the frenzy comes. This is not an organized evacuation. This is an evacuation gone wrong. And the movie goes to great lengths to make that clear. They never intended to retreat to this beach and they never intended to get trapped on this beach. Then there's the second plot section titled The Sea, which follows a family's attempts to take their own vessel into the war zone instead of letting the military commandeer it. They encounter numerous obstacles on their way to Dunkirk, ranging from fire from German airstrikes overhead, and they also pick up a war-torn soldier who is out of his mind and does not want to go back to Dunkirk. He wants to go over to England, and that takes up a significant plot portion of the movie, just the struggle between going and rescuing the soldiers, which is doing what's right, and escaping with their lives, which is what the soldier wants, the survival. The last plot is titled The Air, which follows three English Spitfire pilots providing air support to ground troops. These separate plots are slowly, as the film goes on, intertwined as characters from different parts of the plot are connected by the events of the battle. One of the things a lot of people really noted when exiting the theater was the effective moments where no dialogue was used. This is particularly true for the parts of the film that took place during the air plot. Farrier, played by Tom Hardy in particular, has plenty of moments of intense concentration where he has to shoot down enemy aircraft before they destroy their targets. All the expression in the scene is left to his eyes as he is wearing a mask, which is funny because the same could be said when he played Bane for Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises. So he already, so Chris already knew from working with him on this film or on that film that he could convey a ton of expression even with part of his face obscured which is something that is used to the advantage of his character in this film as well. But the film also proves that you don't need lengthy, quotable dialogue to tell the story of the Battle of Dunkirk. In fact, the moments of silence guided by pacing of the music and the chaotic background noise of the bombs keep you on the edge of your seat, wondering if any of the main characters are going to make it home. The film goes to great lengths to show the hopelessness of the situation, and through following the mole plot, we get to see the desperation of escape and how the soldiers are barely managing to survive, even away from the front line of ground forces. The German pilots are never actually shown in the film, and their only personification is through the destruction that they are causing. 
The element of time is played out here very well, too, and that is used in the soundtrack. The events are unfolding in a way that makes it clear that if they don't escape the speech, the Germans will wipe them out. So the clock is ticking in this story from the very start. Like Baby Driver, this establishes a pace which carries on throughout the edit. The movie feels like a countdown, and until the very end, if you are not familiar with the story, you are not sure if that countdown is headed towards something good or bad. In terms of technicality, the film was actually shot on location at Dunkirk using IMAX 65mm large format film stock. Like most of Christopher Nolan's films, he tried to minimize the use of CGI. Not yet having the experience with some of the cameras he gets to use, I can't say much about this aspect of the film from a technical perspective, but I do think it is neat just how much control over every detail Christopher takes in his films. Being OCD myself, I definitely understand just how much work it takes to get everything just the way you want it, but you still have to marvel over how grand a vision he has with directing. In addition to the 6,000 extras and filming in flight, he filmed in flight. He attached cameras to these planes and filmed in flight. He also had the boats reconditioned just for the purpose of the shoot. To be at the indie film level and think of having the power to get all that stuff from name and reputation alone is a goal to aspire to, for sure. We all want to get our visions out there, but the scale of this was just was just massive. I mean, I can't even imagine being on set there. I mean, just to be on set for a day would have been a tremendous experience just to see how just to see how all of this was working and how much effort was put into the realistic recreation of this battle. The hard work did pay off though, as some critics are even going so far as to call this one of the greatest war films ever made. It is also one of my favorites now as well. In fact, there have been very few Christopher Nolan movies that are unlikable. In my opinion though, I think this film's strength comes from its ability to establish the darkest days and then at the end like the sun rising after a long night, show hope on the horizon. And quite literally, too, as Kenneth Branagh, playing Commander Bolton, announces he sees hope as the civilian vessels come in, ready to evacuate the soldiers. As they say in the tagline, when 400,000 men couldn't get home, home came for them. So taking a step back from the reviews for a bit, what can we learn from these summer blockbuster films? Well, for one thing, I think the important lesson imparted by both is that it is very important to have a unique style for your film and to establish character before plot. Each of these films takes a good amount of time to introduce the audience to the characters. Pivotal, emotional moments in the plot of Dunkirk reveal important personality traits and character. In Baby Driver, the characters are established right off the bat through scenes that show interactions with other characters. There are a lot of movies out there now that don't take the time to establish character. For a lot of action-oriented films, and I'm talking some of the latest Marvel entries, and even Valyrian and the City of a Thousand Planets, which are being criticized for lack of sustainable character development. While Valyrian was a movie I was looking forward to, it seems, at least according to reviews, to have fallen into what is becoming the all-too-familiar sci-fi trope of spending all the attention on visual effects and not enough on story or character. That's not to say all the reviews of the film were bad, but still, the let's-meet-some-alien-style science fiction films usually tend to fall short unless they are part of a tried-and-tested franchise like Star Wars and Guardians of the Galaxy. Baby Driver and Dunkirk remind us moviegoers that near-perfectly executed originality still exists in a Hollywood that seems to be obsessed with franchise and large-scale special effects blockbusters. 
That's not to say that some of the larger films don't try in terms of hitting the marks the Baby Driver and Dunkirk hit so flawlessly, but when you're managing too busy a plot, it is much harder to establish those character-defining moments that make good movies such a delight to see on the big screen. Okay, so while you have while you have the heroes of the big screen, you also have those TV shows that keep you hooked. For TV, completely different. They, they don't want to create a neatly packaged experience. They want to actually create an experience that makes you coming back for more and more and more. So I'm a big fan of television in this regard because you can do a lot more work setting up plots and character and not have to shift everything into a movie that will probably not be able to exceed three hours, which even if you have a big story to tell is pretty long. TV gives you more time to establish these plots and character development over the course of the show. Given the lengthy discussions we get into about world building in science fiction, you can guess which show it's time to talk about next. Doctor Who. Ooh. So this season, we, we had some exciting new developments, which I was very fond of. Huge fan of Doctor Who, by the way, in case you haven't figured that out. So of course we were going to go here. I have no problem here with the TV shows spoiling them because if you are listening to this podcast, if you are on Facebook, if you're actually anywhere on the internet, you've probably seen the spoilers already. So, well, we're going to get into a big discussion here. So what I love most about the season finale is that it isn't just about the Doctor. Whereas last season we had to find the solution to a cryptic puzzle waiting at the end of the universe, this season the Doctor is trying to fully reform Missy, who seems to now possess regret and remorse. So this finale is as much about her as it is about him. Missy has always been different than other incarnations of the Master, and this is not just because she's a woman. She genuinely respects the love-hate relationship with the Doctor and in many ways goes to great lengths to show how they are similar. Older versions of the Master, did the, they did not care about the morality of the Doctor and did not go to great lengths to try and prove to the Doctor how they were similar. It was just kind of, I'm the Master, I deserve to conquer the universe. You are the doctor. You can try and stop me. And that's always been their relationship. The master comes up with the plan. The doctor tries to stop him. There's never been a master that has tried to understand and respect the other character as much as Missy has. But this season changed a lot because she was caught for some of her crimes and is awaiting execution. And at the end, she reaches out to the doctor and tells him she will genuinely try to be good. And I think this is a huge tipping point for her character because now at the end, she realizes she cannot force the doctor into seeing the universe the way that she sees it. He alone can save her by sparing her life. And this is definitely not the first time an incarnation of the master has faced certain death. While I could reference the classic era, I will, for the sake of condensed argument, stick with the modern era. Of course, Missy faced death in Death in Heaven when the doctor to save Clara decided that he was going to execute Missy in place of Clara, who wanted to kill her for her crimes that she committed in that episode. And of course, Missy found a way out of it. And then, of course, more recently with Missy, she was left at the hands of the Daleks and managed to get herself out of that sticky situation and into another situation which put her in the hands of her executioners. Lord knows the progression of those events, but this is Doctor Who and we don't we don't get to ask the question of what the master is doing in, with the TARDIS when he's not when she's he or she is not with the doctor. So, going back even further 
in the modern era with John Sims incarnation, the master. He was shot by his wife, Lucy, in The Last of the Time Lords, and he held back his regeneration to die instead of traveling with the doctor. Granted, he had his ring and the knowledge his followers would try to resurrect him, but for the moment, he reveled in the torture of leaving the doctor as The Last of the Time Lords, as at this point in the series, they were still thought dead from the time war. So what has changed here with Missy? She doesn't hate the doctor anymore and certainly doesn't want to hurt him, So why is she putting out this reconciliation? Well, to dig deeper into the Master's character and set up his appearance in this episode, let's remember when we last saw John Sims' incarnation in the end of time. Back into the time war, Rassilon! Back into hell! Gallifrey falling! Gallifrey falling! You died with me! Doctor! I know. Get out of the way. You did this to me! All of my life! So after this, it can be guessed that he wounded Rassilon enough to cause him to regenerate, and given the fact that many Time Lords probably weren't fans of the fact that he just tried to obliterate the universe, he probably was forgiven for that and found help to cure both his botched regeneration as well as rid his head of the sound of drums. Rassilon toward the end, spoiler alert if you've watched last season's season finale. I mean, spoiler. Why am I even doing spoiler alerts? Spoilers. Spoiler alert's been done. Anyway, end of last season finale, it was discussed that um, Rassilon was not liked, and the Doctor used that dislike to kick him off the planet. So I can't imagine that anybody would have been too upset that the Master mortally wounded Rassilon, especially given what we just talked about him trying to destroy the universe in the episode, The End of Time. I mean, he had this grandiose plan that the Time Lords were going to ascend into creatures of of consciousness alone. Anyway, that's a lot of stuff. A lot of back history in Doctor Who. (laughs) But the master still being the master meant that curing him of the noise in his head, bump, 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 Okay. <laughs> it didn't necessarily take away his cruelty, even without the crazy noise of the drums that was driving him nuts. He was still the master. And as the 12th Doctor eventually mentions in the episode, he got kicked out of Gallifrey, sort of a mutual kicking out, and eventually found his way to the Mondasian colony ship and lived like a king before his cruelty was rebelled against and he was forced to living in disguise. And that is where we pick up with this episode, a finality that is as much about the Master as it is about the Doctor. Missy, having been kept in captivity alone, is left with her thoughts, and throughout this season even reveals she remembers the name of all the people she has killed, which 
makes that earlier promise to become good all the more genuine because she really it, she would not be trying to remember the people that she killed had she not been on the path to good. So good sign for Missy. I'm a huge fan of Missy, by the way. I just love her incarnation, the master. So the doctor, having set Missy on the path to good, has one more confirmation before he can decide whether he can trust her, and that is to give her a test. The best way to understand the universe, as the doctor points out, is when it's asking for your help. So they land the TARDIS on a ship that has sent out a distress call. There's just several problems here, though. They are on a massive colony ship backing away from a black hole. Now, I'm not the doctor, but I watched enough science fiction and read enough about physics to offer a more lengthy explanation than what was given by the doctor. Gravity has a huge effect on the passage of time. In fact, time is warped around areas of intense gravity. If space-time is a cloth and gravity is represented by round objects being placed on the cloth, then the warping of space-time is represented by the indentation on the cloth caused by the weight of the object. The deeper into the surface of the cloth the object sinks, the more slowly time passes because of the indentation in space-time. So a black hole would be an object that had sunk so much it could no longer be seen on the surface of the cloth. So here you have the perfect plot set up for a story as you can increase the speed of events on the lower levels of the ship while the plot unfolds at a slower pace from up above. Alright, so having set up the review by explaining a little background, let's start with the world enough in time. Yeah, so the companion getting a hole burned through her in one of the first scenes was a very bold way to open. Everything that followed was showing Bill transforming into something less than human. The shock at realizing a giant boxy machine was keeping her alive, the revelation that all of the people being kept alive with cybernetic components were in a constant state of pain. I mean, she was in a freaky mental hospital-looking place surrounded by people who are getting these treatments. She is kept company by a man named Razor, who at first glance appears to be nothing more than a crazy hospital worker. This leads to some scenes that I liked, especially a scene where he took her outside and explained what had happened to the civilization. They had come down, and with time passing quicker than on the top of the ship, created generations' worth of civilization. So in an effort to survive, they started to cut away all the parts of themselves that made them human to become machines, which I think is really what the Cybermen were intended to be from that first episode. They're just humans who were put into a harsh climate and had to replace pieces of themselves to survive. And this, in my opinion, is more scary than the metal tank version of the Cybermen that we had been um, getting introduced to in the more modern era. They were more massive human-shaped android tanks. And again, I mean, I think it was just a great choice to go with the with the classic Cybermen for this episode. The fleshy hands of these creatures, as well as the surgical-like bandages covering the faces, these were the Cybermen as they were originally designed to be feared. Not metal tanks, but people who had surgically altered themselves so much that they had not an ounce of humanity left. The situation is desperate, and the polluted city is in ruin, 
And this whole episode is just scary on multiple levels, really. I mean, the hospital scenes where poor Bill was wandering around areas full of disfigured characters was just amazing. It set an eerie atmosphere that carried over for most of the episode. Then, of course, you have the fact that Bill has to watch the doctor frozen in time, unable to help her and get down to her level of the ship because he is on the upper level, which, as we just discussed in that physics conversation, is moving at practically no speed compared to the level of the ship that Bill is on, which is farther away from the black hole. Is it any wonder that Bill wants to get away from the hospital? But Razor is not all he appears to be and tricks her into entering the conversion theater where Bill is made into a Cyberman. She's, I mean, this was a very good scene too because she's really hurt and angered at the betrayal because she was thinking that Razor was trying to help her. What follows next is one of my favorite scenes out of the whole episode, the double reveal. Accessing. Bill Potts. Locating. Bill Potts. I am Bill Potts. Hello, Missy. I'm the master. The shock and awe on Missy's face, not knowing her former self, was on the ship. That was amazing. And as we mentioned earlier, while John Sims' master is a bit less crazy than before, he still doesn't hold the doctor in very high regard. So he set this whole thing up just to hurt him. So this is probably one of the best cliffhangers. And not just a great cliffhanger, but one of the really good moments in modern era, in the modern era of Doctor Who. This is the first episode to feature two masters, and they've got the doctor in a position where he is heartbroken and trapped with them. Also, I thought that the moment where they added the tear and went through the mask to show that Bill was crying underneath the Cyberman suit, I thought that that was a very effective visual cue to end the episode with all right so but to say this is one of my favorite season finales all the way through is an understatement world enough in time just hit all the right marks and may even be one of Moffat's best season finales when you look at both of the episodes as a whole the doctor falls drops a bit of the intense atmosphere that made world enough in time such a hit with fans but adds a lot more twists and turns in a season full of surprises As I mentioned, this finale is just as much about the Master as the Doctor, and here we get more details on the backstory. I mentioned part of it before. The Master is kicked out of Gallifrey and immediately sets out in his TARDIS. He gets stranded on the colony ship and rules for a while before being overthrown and forced into hiding. But this episode isn't about his backstory. It is all about how the Master has changed since becoming Missy. Without hope. Without witness. Without reward. Without hope. Without witness. Without reward. The old master never understood that. For John Sims' master, it was always about winning and conquest or sometimes just sheer torture of the doctor. Missy is different. She has a respect for what the doctor has become. In Death in Heaven, she claimed she had traveled up and down the doctor's timeline and worked out what he really needed. She thought he wanted an army to shape the universe into what he thought it should be. The doctor could go and use his army 
to help bolster the good guys and turn his vision of the universe into a reality. But obviously that wasn't what the doctor needed. But in her defense, that's probably what she wanted too. And she thought that deep down the doctor was like her. And she wanted to bond with him over that. From there, she had a connection with him. And once she started considering the doctor, she would go and have further adventures with him. Even being entrusted with his confession dial, which is the Time Lord equivalent of a will. After attempting one final lesson by convincing the doctor to exterminate Clara, who is inside a Dalek, in order to show him a friend inside the enemy and the enemy inside a friend, everyone's a bit of both, a bit of a hybrid, she concludes. So from there, she's beginning to, uh, I think she's beginning to show the doctor that there is a bit of friendship in her that doesn't involve pure evil and just flat out attempts to destroy him. She's finally starting to come around here. It's not until she's put into that moment of desperation with her execute with her execution imminent that she actually comes around fully. But you know, that path down to good is not so easy to follow when you're tempted back into your old ways and she has a choice between standing with the doctor or going back to the way she used to be. I think they went through tremendous lengths in this episode to show that Missy was the older and mature incarnation. He threw me against a wall and made me promise to always, always carry a spare dematerialization circuit. I don't remember much about her now, but she must have made quite an impression. You know you basically have me to thank for this. You're welcome. By the way, is it wrong that I... Yes. Very. And of course, as funny as that scene was, that was not my favorite moment with the Master in this episode. I will play the scene which was my favorite moment with the Master and Missy now. I loved being you. Every second of it. Oh, the way you burn like a sun. Like a whole screaming world on fire. I remember that feeling, and I always will. And I will always miss it. I just think this moment between the two of them was so well done. It was Missy looking at herself, literally, and saying, I loved being you. I remember how violent and impulsive I used to be, and I will always miss it. But that's not the way I am now. She has to stand with the doctor and grow as a character and as a person. And she is willing to kill her previous incarnation to do so. Now, granted, I don't know why she had to follow John Sim just to kill him. I think she wanted to go with him for a good part of the time when she was following back to the TARDIS and at the very last moment decided on this path of redemption. Either way, I think that this was just a beautifully done moment in the episode and I think the redemption was played out perfectly by Michelle Gomez and like she said, thinking of all of her previous interactions with the Doctor, it's where she's always been going. She has to stand with him. And John Sims' master, still being John Sims' master, I mean, he's done some very bad stuff to the Doctor, and he still has a deep, seething hatred of the Doctor. 
which he will not get over until his next incarnation. So even dying, having been stabbed by Missy, he asked her why she did it. And when she says that she's going to stand with the doctor, he cannot accept that. And this happens. It's time to stand with the doctor. No. Never. Missy! I will never stand with the doctor! Yes, my dear, you will. Don't bother trying to regenerate. You got the full blast. That was such a shocking moment. I knew that John Sims' master was not going to let that go, but just the way it happened and the fact that she just lit up like that, it just... I thought the whole. I, I thought that that was also another one of my 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 favorite moments because, you know, it does make sense for the character. The perfect ending for the master is for him to shoot himself in the back. He doesn't like the fact that eventually he has to join the doctor and eventually he's going to regenerate into an incarnation that thinks this way, and he would rather end the regeneration cycle completely and not have any more regenerations than allow Missy to go and stand with the doctor. So in effect, he's he's killing himself. Um, and that just goes to show what kind of a ma- what kind of a character he is. It harkens back to that moment where he died in the doctor's arms rather than traveling with him in the TARDIS. This is a version of the master that truly hates the doctor. And much more of a burning way than Missy does. And Missy doesn't actually hate the Doctor anymore. I mean, she used to. She she used to kind of have a contempt for him. And now she doesn't. And, and it's just amazing the way that they played out these scenes between the older version of the character and the newer version of the character. You see, Missy, this is where we've always been going. This is our perfect ending. We shoot ourselves in the back. (laughs) So that's not to say that the episode completely revolved around the master. I mean, the doctor had some great moments in this episode too. And one of my favorite moments with the doctor is this. You can't win. I know. And? (laughs) Come on, lady version. I honestly don't know what you see in him. Likewise. No! No! When I say no, you turn back around. Hey! I'm going to be dead in a few hours, so before I go, let's have this out, you and me, once and for all. (sighs) Winning? Is that what you think it's about? I'm not trying to win. I'm not doing this because I want to beat someone, or because I hate someone, or because, because I want to blame someone. It's not because it's fun. God knows it's not because it's easy. It's not even because it works, because it hardly ever does. I do what I do because it's right! 
because it's decent. And above all, it's kind. It's just that. Just kind. If I run away today, good people will die. If I stand and fight, some of them might live. Maybe not many, maybe not for long. Hey, you know, maybe there's no point in any of this at all. But it's the best I can do. So I'm going to do it. And I will stand here doing it till it kills me. You're going to die too. Someday. What would that be if you thought about it? What would you die for? Who I am? It's where I stand, where I stand. It's where I fall. Stand with me. These people are terrified. Maybe we can help. See this face. Take a good, long look at it. This is the face that didn't listen to a word you just said. you have. I know what you're capable of. Stand with me. It's all I've ever wanted. Me too. And now, sorry. Just See, he's always tried to explain to the master why he does things the way he does, particularly in the third Doctor's era. But here's a moment where he's like, no, you guys stand there and I'm going to explain to you why I do what he why I do what I do. And it's never about winning or beating anyone, but being kind. The old master is not willing to accept this explanation. But Missy, having survived an execution, thanks to the doctor and been protected by him in a quantum fold chamber, knows better. To the old master, it's all about conquest and winning. He doesn't know anything outside of that. So he's like, okay, I'm not going to listen to a word you just said because that's not the way I think. And he's really clinging to that hatred of the doctor once again. And then the other thing that I really liked about the episode is that Bill finally got the ending she deserved and was rescued by Heather, who we saw in the first episode, The Pilot. They save the doctor... And in a nod to past regenerations, he dreams of all his companions. And finally, the 12th Doctor is met face-to-face with the first Doctor.
will not change. I will not. No, 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 no. The whole thing's ridiculous. Hello? Someone there! Who is that? I'm the doctor! The doctor! No, I don't think so. No, hear me, no. You may be a doctor, but I am the doctor. The original, you might say. I am so excited for the Christmas special. I can't wait to have uh, David Bradley back. It'll be great to see. It'll be great to see the two of them in the Christmas episode, and I'm sure that they have something great planned to show us. And I can't wait for Jodie Whittaker. I know a lot of people are upset at the fact that there's a female doctor, but hey, I mean, Missy is one of my favorites. I mean, she. I thought the John Sims master was pretty crazy and and pretty good, but Missy to me, she just made she just made it great. I mean, she just took a totally new spin on the character. And I don't know why people are so closed off to the idea of a woman doing the same with the doctor. It's it's crazy. I mean, you you guys got to grow with the times. I mean, it's been 50 over 50 years of having the doctor as a as a man. We've got to change it up. I mean, and it's been established that Time Lords can do this. So don't stop watching the show because, you, because you're nervous about a woman becoming the doctor. I mean, it was going to happen sooner or later. It's just a question. I mean, it's, it was just a question of when somebody was going to do it. I mean, past incarnations of the doctor had been talking about it about the fact that the new doctor could potentially be a woman for a long time, going back even to the classic area. So I, for one, can't wait for the Christmas episode. And having seen uh, Jodie Whittaker in Broadchurch and a bunch of other stuff, I'm very interested to see what she's going to do with the role. And I think fans should give her a chance. It's it, The Doctor does not have to be a man. And we are going into a more modern time. And this is, again, this is something... That needed to be done. It needed to be done to shake up the show and keep it relevant. And for every person that is not happy about this, I am sure they're going to gain so much more viewers from having done this. I think it was totally a good decision, and I cannot wait to see Jody in the role. All right. Long review over. I get very passionate about Doctor Who, especially this season, because it is very on target when it comes to getting things right. You have full character arcs and even a well-played redemption that could only be done on television when you have that long history of, I mean, it can only be done on television, it can only be done, you have 50 years to develop the, the master as a character and have this redemption. Over 50. Were this a movie, you wouldn't have time for any of these long-lasting character arcs that give you emotional payoffs like what you have here in this episode. And I think this model of character development is also what has made Game of Thrones so successful. You're building entire arcs around characters and how they change with the story rather than getting the characters to fit whatever is needed from the story. And that is where I think these top shows do well. All of the TV shows I used to watch, which would be taken off the air. I mean, I used to watch quite a few TV shows that I would that, that were very popular at the time I watched them and then they kind of faded and were canceled. 
And most of the time it was because they had no new character developments or repetitive plots that went nowhere. I mean, you can only do something so many times before it gets boring. And to emphasize this, I have a great quote that I came up with. A great painting isn't made through shades of similar colors, but by combining brush strokes from different color palettes to make a really complete piece. People may have said something similar to that before, but that was something that I felt was very appropriate to this argument. So throwing that in there. So what have we learned? Character first. Character has to be the foundation that every story is built off of. If you don't have these wonderfully insightful advancements in character writing that are done by these writers, your story will stagnate or just never take off. It's great if you have that wonderfully interesting plot, but story has always been told through dialogue and actors. You cannot have a good story if the performances and the character development are not matching that story. Plus, you take all that out and all you have is a visual effects extravaganza. Now, I have nothing against visual effects since I work on quite a few of them myself, but you want more than that per story. Anyway, I hope this discussion has sparked some interesting ideas from some of my fellow writers. Watching how other people execute some great work gives ideas and inspiration to me, and I hope it will to some of you as well. As always, thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts or comments on today's episode, please be sure and comment on the Surrealist Pictures SoundCloud page under this track. Also, you can now listen to us on iTunes and directly from our website, surrealistpictures.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure and repost this track on SoundCloud, share on Facebook and Twitter, plus like and follow us for the latest updates.